Everybody all right? Everybody's kind of quiet. Hey, we're going to be Jeremiah 36, so if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to open up. As we look from Jeremiah 34 on, one of the unique things, I guess, let's start there. One of the unique things about the book of Jeremiah is it's not in chronological order. It's grouped together the way Jeremiah wanted to group it together, by prophecies, by kings that was given to. This section from 34 through 39 is a section dealing with uh, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah. So if you remember the last period of, of uh, Judah's history, before they go into captivity, they have four kings. So you remember them like this, short, long, short, long. The two guys who are long reigned for 11 years. Each one reigned for 11 years. Each one of those was a king installed by another nation. The first one, Jehoiakim, was installed by Egypt. The second one, Zedekiah, was installed by Babylon. This section from 34 through 39 are prophecies that are given to those two kings. So they're not back-to-back kings. They're kings that are separated by, by a third king who only ruled for a short time uh, during part of the rebellion. Tonight, we're looking at a period of time under Jehoiakim. And when we look at Jehoiakim, this is the beginning of the first siege by Nebuchadnezzar. The first siege by Nebuchadnezzar is where Daniel gets taken into captivity. Okay, so you just kind of get the timeline set in your mind. So you're going to go from Zedekiah, who's the last king right before they're conquered for the last time, and everything's destroyed. That's Zedekiah. Jehoiakim is around 12 years earlier than that. So, or more, depending on where in his reign. We're going to be dealing with the fourth year and the fifth year of his reign tonight as we look at the section we have before us. Now, as we looked at these chapters, you remember 34 starts with the promise keepers. Or I'm sorry, the promise breakers, then the promise keepers. The promise breakers, remember they made a deal, they're going to let all the slaves go? And then Babylon withdrew and they captured all their slaves and made them slaves again. So they broke their deal and Babylon came back. The second one we looked at last night were the promise keepers. They were the guys, the Rechabites, who kept a promise their father made for 200 years. They would never drink wine. And so they, they became an example that God used to Judah, hey, why can't you be like these guys and keep your promise to me? Now, it wasn't about wine, it was just being faithful. Tonight, we're going to look at a section here that's dealing with the scroll of the book of Jeremiah and its treatment with under Jehoiakim. So let's take a look at it. It says, in the fourth year, Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. So <clears throat> again, we're in the first wave of Babylon. Daniel hasn't gone yet, but he's going to. It's near that time. The fourth year of Jehoiakim, you have that beginning. And in a little while, we'll see the fifth year where that's already been accomplished. So he says in verse 2, take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah till today. So it's not the complete book of Jeremiah, but everything Jeremiah has talked about chronologically from the beginning of Josiah. You remember Josiah is the last king, brought revival to Judah. Jeremiah 
and Josiah were contemporaries. In fact, historically, Jeremiah sang during the funeral of Josiah. After Josiah, four kings to the end of Judah. So Josiah is the, the last good king uh, that's, that's going to reign. So he, the Lord says, everything I've told you since Josiah to today, write it down in a scroll. So the Lord had, he gives us uh, this thing. So you're talking about roughly at least 10 years, at least 10 years prophetically, uh, could be more. Uh, we don't, we're not sure at what point in Josiah's reign Jeremiah began prophesying. So at somewhere in there, um, Jeremiah begins to hear from the Lord. So at least 10 years of prophecies, the Lord says, I want you to write all these down. I have a purpose for them that, for you to use in it. And it's interesting because it's one of the only places in the Old Testament where you actually see God telling the prophet, write your stuff down, put it in a scroll. So he says in verse 3, it may be uh, that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. So here's the, this is the reason behind it. So put all these prophecies in a scroll. Now, just so we can kind of understand how they were delivered. Uh, when Ezekiel, Ezekiel was a kind of a unique case. As a prophet, Ezekiel never spoke unless he had a prophecy. Ezekiel was in captivity in Babylon. So he goes during, uh, just after Daniel. And Ezekiel, every time he walked out of his house in Babylon, the people would gather because that meant he had a word from the Lord. And he would deliver it or act it out or whatever the thing was, and he'd go back in his house. Um, Jeremiah, the Lord would say, go to the temple. Or he would say, go to the king. Or he would say, go to the city gates. And Jeremiah would go to those places and deliver the prophecy. So the prophet spoke. It was here as we look at that you had things in the Old Testament called the school of the prophets where the prophets had disciples that followed the prophets, right? That were there hearing what they said, believed in what they, and so they would begin to write down the prophecy. That's how we get the book of Ezekiel or the book of Jeremiah or the book of Isaiah. These are things that are accumulated by the, the prophecies that they spoke to the people. But here in Jeremiah 36, you hear God saying to Jeremiah, put it together and uh, maybe the people, when they hear it, they'll turn. Maybe they'll repent. And the point is, I can relent. So <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar has not conquered yet, but he's coming. And it's like the last, the last moment of outreach to a nation, calling them to, to repentance. Uh, that the Lord might forgive their iniquity and their sin. So you have all here, God's purpose. He wants them to turn this plea for repentance and the willingness from God that he would pardon, right? I will pardon you if you repent. So this, these things are laid out before the people. So verse 4, then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah. Baruch wrote on the scroll, at the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. So he brings the secretary. We know this is the same way that Paul wrote Romans. That he spoke, he dictated, and a secretary wrote it. Some of Paul's letters he writes with his own hand. He says, see, I write this with my own hand. 
look with what big letters I use, you know, the, the description of his writing style. Well, here, <clears throat> Jeremiah speaks it, Baruch writes it down. So he's a, he is a professional, um, I forget what they call him, amanuensis is what they call him in Greek. I don't know what they call them in the Hebrew world, but secretary. So he's going to be uh, writing down all the words that Jeremiah speaks, which is kind of amazing, right? It takes the anointing of God and the Holy Spirit. Scripture tells us in Timothy, right, that all Scripture is what? God breathed. It's God breathed. So Jeremiah is able to bring a secretary in and speak all the prophecies he'd given for 10 years. Can you imagine that? That's pretty incredible. So he's going to speak it out. Baruch's going to write them down. Uh, and Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord. So he couldn't go to the temple anymore. If you remember in our study in Jeremiah, all the way back in chapter 20, <clears throat> Jeremiah had an altercation with one of the priests that ran the temple. In Jeremiah chapter 20, it says, I'll just read it for you real quick. Jeremiah 20, 1 through 6. Now Pashur the priest, the son of Emer, who was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. And Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate uh, of the house of the Lord. And the next day when Pashur released Jeremiah from the stocks, Jeremiah said, the Lord does not call your name, Pasher, but terror on every side. So he changes Pasher's name. I'm sure he wasn't thrilled by that. So they, these guys were not uh, friendly to one another. For thus says the Lord, behold, I will make you a terror to yourself and all your friends, and they will fall by the sword of their enemies while you look on. And I will give all Judah to the hand of the king of Babylon. He will carry them captive to Babylon and shall strike them down with the sword. Moreover, I will give all the wealth of the city and all its gains and all its prized belongings and all the treasures of the kings of Judah to the hand of their enemies who will plunder them and seize them and carry them to Babylon. And you, Pasher, and all who dwell in your house will go into captivity. To Babylon you shall go and there you shall die. So after that, Jeremiah wasn't welcome there anymore as long as Pashur was there. Jeremiah would go to the temple. Remember, God would say, Jeremiah, go to the temple because that's where all the people are and deliver to them this call to repentance, to turn. But now Jeremiah can't go, so he's going to have the scribe, Baruch. He's going to go for him. He's written down everything that he had, had uh, prophesied over those early 10, 12, 15 years. Uh, so he says, so you will go on a day of fasting to the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house. And you will read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. And you will read them in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out from their city. So he's telling them, here's what I want. Here's what's going to happen. I want you to deliver all the words of the Lord. It's not the words of Jeremiah, right? These are the words of the Lord. When we look at and study the concept of biblical inspiration, we need to understand that it's not the concept of biblical dictation. God doesn't dictate to Jeremiah. God gives it to Jeremiah. Jeremiah's personality still comes through. You study Jeremiah, you understand his style. You study Paul, you understand his style. The way he wrote, 
the way he spoke. You and I, given, it's interesting because when you do a, a study going through, especially biblical inspiration and the tenacity of the text of the Bible, there are over a thousand ways to say something like, uh, Jackie loves Kathy. A thousand ways. And you get the message across the way God wants the message across because he has breathed it into you. But your personality, you're, gonna, you're going to construct the grammar your way. Peter spoke like a poor fisherman or like a truck driver or like a farmer where you have Paul who was a studied, learned man from, from universities. He's going to use, in fact, he creates his own words. Paul creates his own words. You thought that was something that we do only? No, Paul did it, which makes a challenge for translators because they find words that Paul only used once. How do we, how do we translate that? Well, like this. <clears throat> so those are the challenges, right? But the personality comes through. But Jeremiah, when he tells Baruch, he says, these are the words of the Lord. This is what God has given me, faithfully delivered to Baruch, faithfully delivered to a scroll, faithfully going to be spoken before the people and faithfully delivered to us. So it's interesting to see that whole process laid out here for us in Jeremiah chapter 36. So where is he going to do it? He's going to go to the Lord's house where Jeremiah can't go. So he's headed to the temple and he's going to do it on a day of fasting. Why? Because that's when all the people are going to be there. So a high holy day in, in Israel was not necessarily a fast for, for repentance or for something. It was just the idea that, hey, this is a time where we're going to gather to celebrate something and everybody's here. So go on that. Go on a day of fasting. Come to this place. So he's going to call them to turn uh, from their wickedness. Verse 7, here's, what, here's the hope of Jeremiah and ultimately the hope of the Lord, right? It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and everyone will turn from his, ev uh, his evil way for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. So here's what he's looking for. Now, when we talk and we look at our nation today, I don't really see a big discrepancy between us and the Judah of old that was facing the judgment of God and going into exile. The call of the Lord to the nation was, you have done wickedly, you've sinned against me, and so the, the way to change what's going on around us is to repent. Now, we have a picture of that in a book called Jonah, right? Jonah goes to a place called Nineveh. Nineveh was the Assyrian kingdom which ruled and had held power the kingdom prior to Babylon. So the world power before Babylon was Assyria. And so Jonah goes to Assyria, Nineveh, the capital, and he calls the people to repentance or God's going to judge them. They'll be wiped out in 40 days if they don't repent. Jonah had a bad attitude. It goes to show you that revival can still happen if the preacher has a bad attitude when he's preaching. Jonah had a bad attitude. He's mad that God spares him, right? He doesn't put a lot of effort into the delivery of his message, does he? 40 days and God's going to kill you unless you repent. I'm sure he was happy to deliver that part. And he went to a high mountain and watched what would happen. Yes? And then from that high mountain, he sees the king 
Take off his robe and lay down his crown and put on sackcloth. Dump ash on his head, fall on his knees and repent. And, all, and command all the people of the nation to do the same. And so God relented. Now, there's another prophet, Nahum, who is sent back to Nineveh later to deliver the message again. And that time, they don't repent and God's judgment falls. So, we see a similar thing in our world today. You, I can't, I mean, I know that, that uh, the ancient world siege warfare was infinitely worse than what we're experiencing. But surely, I have been around for 55 years and never seen unrest like it is now. And I'm not saying there wasn't unrest in the 60s. I know there was. I was a little young then, so I, I don't remember all of it. But I, I know there was unrest, and there's always been a bit of unrest. But we are, I've never seen us this divided. When I, when I spoke last Sunday and we, we talked about the, the interview that I did with Christine, who was there on the sidewalk in 9-11 when the towers were hit by a, by a plane. In fact, that interview, by the way, I know we couldn't see it on Sunday, but it's on our uh, YouTube page. So if you go to Calvary Chapel Buell YouTube site, you can see the interview, not just hear it. So if you want to get a chance to see it. But anyway, when that occurred, what happened to our nation? Well, there's a lot of unity, I remember. We came together and people were looking for ways to help and churches were full. It was pretty crazy. And and uh, it was a time that unified us. Now, something bad happens and we just start burning down buildings or beating up our brother, hating our neighbor, whatever. And so the that breakdown, now this is something that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, right? That there would be, nation would rise up against nation. We would become divided by our ethnic backgrounds. Isn't that what's going on? Now Jesus didn't say that's, he said that's the beginning of sorrows, not that, that's the end. That's, that's not the end. But he did call us to lift up your heads, right? Your redemption draws nigh. So that means basically in the biblical speak, uh, time short, so get busy. People need to hear the gospel. People need hope. And we need to be able to deliver that hope. And similarly, in, in uh, Judah and in Jerusalem, this is what Jeremiah is hoping. This is why God's delivering the scroll in writing that the secretary can go read again all the prophecies that Jeremiah had come out and spoke. But right, he only, he only went out and would speak it once, maybe twice. And then months would pass in another one. You get what I'm saying now? It's going to be in a scroll. They're going to stand there and read it. Here's the interesting thing. In 70 years, so pause right where we are right now in Jeremiah. Go forward 70 years. Daniel's going to say in the book of Daniel, I discovered by searching through the scrolls that the time of captivity was just about over. And so Daniel's going to talk about reading the scroll of Jeremiah, which we see the beginning of, you know, writing down the concept of him writing them down in, in uh, chapter 36. So he wants to see the people relying on the Lord. He wants to see the people repenting, and he wants to see <clears throat> the people remembering what happens if you don't. And that's always the case 
any time a nation or kingdom or people are under judgment. It's no different for us today. What is the important message that we need to deliver? That, God, that people need to rely on the Lord alone. That people need to repent. We are ju- we're guilty. We're in the nation. Whatever our nation's done, we're a part of. So us repenting to God for the sins of our nation is good. That's what Daniel did for his nation as well. And then recognizing the consequences if the people don't turn. If the people don't turn, judgment continues, right? And so we see this laying out. He's, he's calling the people to repent. So in verse 8 it says, Baruch the son of Neri did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. So he did it. Year 4. You remember, we read that in, uh, in verse 1. Now, in verse 9, a year has passed. You see it? In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came uh, from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. And in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord, in the chamber of Gemariah, and the, the son of Shaphan, the, the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. So he goes to the Lord's house. Uh, uh, he writes down all of the scroll. A year later, the people proclaim a fast. He goes out and he reads the scroll in the hearing of the people. Now, why it's important that they do it at the time of the fast is because that's when the leadership will be there. The leadership is not there every week. People may be, but the king's not there every week, but, but he may show up for special things. And the princes, <clears throat> the nobility, they'll show up for special things, and that's what you're going to see in verse 11, the response of the princes. Look, when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words uh, of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house, into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. So, so Micaiah, he's a noble. He's part of the leadership of Judah. He happens to be there. He hears Baruch share the, the book of Jeremiah, the, at least the first 12, 10, 12 years. He delivers out that call over and over again to repentance or God's judgment is coming, Babylon's coming. Now, at the time, they know that's true because by year five in Jehoiakim's reign, Daniel is in Babylon now. So they've been introduced the first time to Nebuchadnezzar. They're going to be introduced to Nebuchadnezzar two more times. So just like baseball, on the third strike, you are. So by the third strike, there's not going to be anything left. So the first one, they're conquered. He takes some of the nobility, the young nobility go to Babylon. That's where Daniel's going to spend the rest of his life. That's where Ezekiel goes, and he's a prophet for the Lord there in Babylon. <clears throat> so they're, they're recognizing the, the fact of being under judgment. Jeremiah is saying it's going to get worse. Worse things are coming. Worse things can happen. There can be, <clears throat> there's going to be more and more siege all the way to the point where uh, uh, 
hundreds of thousands are going to die. So Jeremiah calling the people to repent, to change, to accept the judgment of God, exile come. They did not have, Judah didn't have to cease to be a place. Jerusalem didn't have to cease to be a city. But their constant rebellion led to the destruction, so there was nothing there. So here you have him delivering the message. Micaiah hears it, and he goes and gets other officials. <clears throat> so Elishima, uh, or Elishama, the, the secretary, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Achbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, <clears throat> the son of Hananiah, and all the officials. And Micaiah told them, all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. So then all the officials sent to Yehuda, the son of Nethaniah, uh, the son of Shemaliah, son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. So now you have the leaders saying, come, we, we want to hear this again. Come, bring the scroll. So they take the scroll in his hand and he came to them. And they said to him, sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to him. So the first one to hear, Micaiah, he goes and gathers the others. So it's like the cabinet of the king are all kind of catching on. And Micaiah is, is uh, moved, and we're going to see all the leadership is moved. Listen to what it says. When they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. So it's like they're like, oh, we're, we were disconnected from the message. We weren't understanding. Now, now we understand the message. Oh, we need, to, we need to tell the king. We need to do something about this. We need to report the words. The Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? Not the end of wisdom, it's the beginning. It's the beginning of the turn, turning toward. Jesus would say this. Why do you call me Lord and not do the things I say? We, we have turned the word Lord into such a religious word that we don't comprehend the message behind it. We should change that to the word master, king even. But even that probably has less connotation for us. So the idea is, why would you, why do you call me your master, but you don't do what I say? Do you understand? Well, people say all the time, I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Is he your Lord? The point is, he wants to be your Lord. You say the words, the Bible says, if you confess him as your Lord and Savior, right? To confess the Lord. To confess to him, you're my Lord. That's just words. But if he is our Lord, then we want to respond to what he said. Yes? We want to respond to the things that he's laying out for us. We want to respond to the message. And so these guys hear the message of Jeremiah, and they want to respond. They're, they're afraid. Oh, my gosh, we are under judgment. This is going to happen. And so they said to Baruch, <coughs> excuse me, we, we must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, tell us, please, how did you write all these words? How did you come up with this message? Was it at his dictation? And Baruch answered, he dictated all the words to me, and I wrote them with ink on the scroll. 
So the officials said to Baruch, now this is interesting. Why did they say this? Go and hide. What does that usually mean? They're probably not going to like your message. Right? If the guys who like your message say, we're going to deliver this to the authorities, but before we do, go hide. Uh, that seems bad. He says, not only do they say, go and hide, you and Jeremiah, but then they say, don't tell anybody where you are. So that seems bad too. So we know that the last four kings are wicked kings, wicked kings who don't want to in any way respond to the direction of the Lord. They all have a view that they're able to deliver the people. And this is why this is an important concept for us to really nail down uh, in our minds because uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue is vital, not in understanding time frame for the return of Christ, but in understanding the failure of man's kingdoms. The head of gold becomes silver, becomes bronze, becomes iron, becomes iron mixed with clay. Now, are there hints all the way through prophetically for the final kingdom? For sure. But what, let's look at the broad message. What's the broad message? The kingdoms of men fail. And the next kingdom comes on. When we study history, what do we learn? Think about the French Revolution. Every time I look at the news, I think about the French Revolution because I feel like there's a little bit of the French Revolution trying to happen here. Now, what happens in the French Revolution is the poor rebel against the rich, but all that occurs by the end of the French Revolution is the people who were poor and funded the rebellion become the people who were rich, and the people who are rich become the poor, which leads into the next rebellion. You get the idea? So you have all these ideas. Man thinks we can solve it if we just do it this way. We can solve all the problems if we do it this way. We can solve all the problems if we do it this way. In reality, what God's word says is we'll solve all the problems when Jesus Christ is king. But if he's not king, if we're trying to be king, we, like all the nations before, are going to rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall, rise and fall. We've been, when I was in school, that's, that, was, that was history in a nutshell. What happens? Rome, oh, superpower. Rome, oh, not so powerful. Right? You see it all. The Bible talks specifically about <coughs> four specific kingdoms and what would happen to them. So it's incredible to see you have this idea. Look, the, the, the ability for man to rule unless he is governed by God it's just not going to happen. The kingdom of God at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is the one that fills the whole earth and never ends, right? The rock that strikes a statue on the feet, grinds it into powder, becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. The kingdom of God will never end. That's the kingdom. But man in his rebellion is trying. What would we do at the Tower of Babel? We're trying to develop a kingdom, right? We are, we are like Satan. We can be like the Most High. Man's been trying to do this for the whole history. It doesn't matter. You pick the, pick the people. It doesn't, I don't care. It doesn't matter. The Aztecs, the Mayans, the Spaniards, everybody in one degree or another, we see this repeating over and over and over again because God is the king of glory. Now what Psalm 24 says, who is the king of glory? 
God, the Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. He's the one. So the king, man, he, he still thinks he's the man. He's the guy. We must report all these words to the king, so you guys go hide. So verse 20, <clears throat> so they went into the court of the king and put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary, so they didn't bring the scroll with them. That's another bad sign, right? Hey, don't bring that scroll. Leave that here. So they hide the scroll, and they go and tell the king all the things that Jeremiah had written. So they're expecting the king to respond, right? Hey, here we are. We are your advisors. We're your nobles. We're coming to you saying, hey, man, Jeremiah's got this thing right. We need to respond. We need to respond to the things that Jeremiah is talking about. So they told the king everything. It says it was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house. And there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. And Yehudi read three or four uh, of the columns. So let me back up. Verse 21. Then the king said to Yehudi, go get the scroll. Yeah, I like your words, but I want to see it. Show me. So they go and get the scroll. Yehudi reads it before the king. Now, you need to understand the way the scrolls were written. So if you unroll the scroll, a scroll doesn't go vertical like sometimes they do in the movies. Up and down, it's not how a scroll goes. A scroll in Hebrew goes from right to left. So you'd open up the whole scroll and you'd read it this way. Across the scroll, one column down, then another column down. The columns roughly, let's call them four inches wide maybe, of a column. Perfect. They counted every letter. They knew how many letters they could get per line. I mean, it was very... Very precise. And what the scripture says is as Yehudi was reading three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them in the fire. So he would read three or four columns and it, nobody tells the king no. The king comes over and they, he'd slice off whatever he read and he'd throw it in the fire. And he, it, scripture says that he continued to do that until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Now, does that somehow get rid of it? <laughs> okay. Well done. You burned all the scroll. So we won't find that scroll. But um, you haven't defeated the word of God, have you? There are some fascinating things in the in the realm of understanding the textual transmission, the transmission of the text of Scripture. We, uh, when we got the first Bible that most of us knew was King James Bible, right? You know, the King James Bible was, was built from eight texts because that's how many we had. And those eight texts that we had were rather late. That means far from the moment. But through time, we now have 5,280 texts that we know of. And there's a room in one particular museum with 50,000 uncatalogued finds. That they simply, there's not that many people who are in the realm of textual uh, study. Nobody goes, you know what I want to do is sit in a room in a museum and look through old people's paper 
and see what I find. So there's a small group of people who are doing it. Who knows what's still to be found in that room? Nobody knows. And, and it'll be slow, but more, I'm, I'm sure more things will be found. So now today when we talk about <clears throat> the, the, the later versions of Bibles, uh, ESV, NASB, you have 5,280 that, that some date within 50, 60 years, which is earliest of anything anywhere. That's kind of incredible. And that the, the, the distinctions or differences that we have between the texts are all relatively minor. So you have this incredible concept of textual transmission over the, over the centuries so that today we can even be more assured than we were back when the King James Bible came out. Eight, 5,000. That's, that's pretty amazing. And that is the method God used to preserve the word of God. And that preservation of the word of God enables us to know. That's why you have footnotes in your Bible today that say, this is not in, in the oldest transmission. That's not something to be afraid of. That just means we had late stuff. Now we have earlier stuff that's better that can tell us what was there. The reason we put the footnotes there is because no, we don't lie about the Bible. We say, here's what's there. And we can hold fast to the truth of what the word of God declares. God delivered his word to the people, no matter how many people try to wipe it out. You think this king burning the scroll of Jeremiah is the last guy? Diocletian, who was the, I want to say he's the last uh, um, Roman emperor before Constantine, he tried to wipe out the Bible. And when Constantine took over, he had them create 50 copies for the, you know, his palace. Every time somebody tried to wipe out the word of God, God preserved his word. my point. God has absolutely preserved his word. One of the greatest guys who will say that the Bible's fake and bogus, when asked, uh, what do you think the Bible said originally? He says, well, pretty much what it says now. So even the greatest, the, the, the biggest uh, critic against the Bible would say, the Bible you have on your lap is the Bible that was delivered back then. And studying through those texts and the things we have, it's amazing study. The point is God is able to preserve his word. Yes, Jesus said, not one jot or tittle will pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Jesus said his word would be preserved. And his word has been preserved. I, I actually love the, the study. I bore some people when I start talking about it, but I love the study of textual transmission and the, and the issues that, uh, that come up within the text. And this reminds me of that. We're going to destroy it. We're going to wipe it all out. <clears throat> what, 19, was it 1948? Throwing a rock in Qumran. We find a thousand year, that's pretty old, earlier, not just a thousand years, a thousand year earlier copy of the book of Isaiah, thousand years earlier than anything we had. That's old. That's old. It's incredible finds. God's word has absolutely been preserved. I have literally no doubts at all 
and it has been delivered to us so that we can understand what is it that the Lord wants of us. You know, we don't have to argue about the things we wonder about. Let's just do the ones we know for sure, right? How about love your neighbor? Do we know we're supposed to do that for sure? You know that's in Leviticus, right? Yeah, that's Leviticus. It's also in the New Testament, but it was written in Leviticus. Love your neighbor. So responding to the king of kings and the Lord of lords, this king, he's going to burn the scroll, and they think, oh, no, he's, he's burning the scroll. Have we lost the word of God? <clears throat> Neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. The guys that delivered it to him, they were afraid. They had responded to the word, but the guys they deliver it to, they don't respond. Even when Elnathan, Deliah, Gemariah urged the king, don't burn the scroll, he would not listen. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the secretary, and Jeremiah, the prophet. So remember, they told him to hide, right? So they go, they, they go to seize him. Go find the prophet. You see the next line? The Lord said no. How many times do you read words like that when the crowd turns on Jesus? It wasn't his time. Well, how's the Bible say it? He passed through the midst of them. They couldn't lay a finger on him. When they wanted to throw him off the cliffs in Nazareth when he declared himself to be Messiah. On the reading of Isaiah 61, he said, Today this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. They wanted to throw him off a cliff. Scripture says Jesus walked through the midst of them. Because it's not his time. You can't touch him. God is king. He says no. They don't find him. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote, at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So can you, could you squash out the word of God? Can the word of God be stopped? Every time Easter comes around, I swear, Time Magazine does another story that drives me crazy. Or the History Channel that talks about, oh, why isn't the Gospel of Thomas in the Bible? Seriously? Because the Gospel of Thomas was written 500 years later. 500 years after the Bible's done you have the Gospel of Thomas show up. That's why the Gospel of Thomas is not in the Bible. You don't have one, you have whole Bibles found that go back within 100, 120 years of Christ. Whole Bibles that have Matthew, Mark, Luke. Yeah, not Thomas. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that's what's there. And now you scroll ahead 400 years and you have the Gospel of Thomas come on the scene. Have you ever read the Gospel of Thomas? It's a little freaky. I have read it. It's a little weird. Um, there are a lot of what's called apocryphal writings. But the word of God was preserved. You know, in, in the, there are full codexes of all of Paul's writings. A co the, the Christians invented the codex. Did you know that? Because the scrolls were too small. Can you imagine a scroll of the whole Bible? What if you wanted to carry the whole Bible with you? How many scrolls would that be? That's a lot of scrolls, right? Can you imagine carrying that around? So you know what the Christians did? They started to cut them and put them in books called codexes. 
And those books are the early state of the Bible. You have whole codexes with all of Paul's writings. Here's a little thing just to get some talk going. And one of the books included in Paul's writings is Hebrews. Oh, interesting. God preserves his word. He delivered it without having anyone with authority. You have crazy people out there that say, oh, with Constantine and this big conspiracy and he developed the Bible. No, he didn't. <clears throat> at the Council of Nicaea. No, they didn't. You can see what they did at the Council of Nicaea. They don't come with a, a orthodox list of the books of the Bible approved by the church until hundreds of years after that. Yet we find codexes with the Bible like you have on your lap. The only, the only books at all that were, that there's like three books that were questionable throughout the history of the church. That's it. That's it. You know, none of those three was Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> Romans, Acts. Nope. Those things were set. The church was utilizing them as authoritative long before the church gave her stamp of approval. Jesus used people saying, I want a copy of that. You know, you couldn't go down to, to Blimpo or whatever the place is called and make copies, right? How did you get a copy? If you said, I, I want a copy of Genesis, I want a copy of the Pentateuch, how did you get it? Well, how do you think you got it? You sat down where somebody had it, and you did what? You copied it. Where did you get your paper? You went to Walmart and got a ream of paper? Nope. Yeah, paper it was not easy to get paper. People went through a lot of work. When you realize that, that the, the text that we have, over 12,000 uh, copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, that's how God preserved his word. If you threw away all the copies of actual texts that we have and only used the early church fathers, I think you have the entire Bible with the exception of like eight verses. God preserved his word. Before there was a printing press or a typewriter or a computer or a cell phone that you push a button and the Bible pops up on it. It's way easier now than it was then, but that's the method that God used. So they're trying to destroy it. They're trying to shut it down. They're going to burn it. They're going to capture the, <clears throat> the, the prophet. They're going to shut him down. So the word of the Lord came to him. And he said, take another scroll and write on it. Well, you, you thought Jeremiah couldn't write another one? Well, go ahead. You can burn that one too. He'll just write another one. And the people who are receiving the word, what are they going to do? They're going to make a copy, and they're going to make a copy, and they're going to make a copy. And one day, in 1948, you're going to walk into a cave in Qumran and open up a jar, and you're going to look, what are all these scrolls in here? Because God preserves his word. And so they're... They say, take another scroll, write on all the former words that the king burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, oh, he's going to add some words. Not Jeremiah, God's going to add some words. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you will say, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written it? 
right? Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy the land and will cut off from it man and beast? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall have none to sit on the throne of David and his dead body will be cast out by the heat of day and the frost by night. And I will punish him, his offspring, the servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon all the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced because they would not hear. A rebellious pagan nation like Assyria, one of the most wicked nations ever, repented at the voice of Jonah. But Judah, God's people, would not repent at the voice of Jeremiah. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it all the dictation of Jeremiah, all the words of the scroll that, Jer uh, that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added. So this is how we end up with the book of Jeremiah today. The beginning point of it in chapter 36 God's deliverance and call to repentance, and he gives us an example of how it is that he's going to preserve the word that he's provided for us. Pretty incredible. The, the uh, absolute surety that we can have in the word of God that we have before us. God is good, and I am a testimony of his goodness. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time that we can gather. Thank you for the opportunity to come before you in this place, Lord, to study Jeremiah. Lord, I pray, God, that you would just fill your people with a desire to know you, to understand, to recognize, to comprehend with all the saints what is the height, breadth, width, and depth of the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord that we would know you, that we would be faithful to you, and that not only do we call you Lord, but we also want to do the things you say. God, I pray that you be glorified and magnified in this place today, and Lord, we will just lift your name wherever we can. May we provide hope for a nation that does not know and Lord, may you bring us, not like Judah, who continued down the road of judgment to destruction, but may we be a nation like Nineveh, who bows our head and calls out on the name of the Lord. For all those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, we pray that you would move in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.